We're in 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16. And we left off with verse 4 last week. We were in the midst of learning about a terrible king, Ahaz. He wasn't just bad, he was terrible. And he was on the throne of Judah at this time. And whereas his father Jotham was a decent king, Ahaz was a wicked king, and he was a wicked father too. And we read that he passed his son through the fire, means he sacrificed him in the fire, just as the heathen nations did. And God never commanded that from his people, not Old or New Testament. He commanded the opposite. He wanted them to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He wanted those Jewish fathers to teach their children the statutes and commandments of the Lord, not to burn them in the fire. So now we continue with some more of the specific things that Ahaz did that were evil in the sight of the Lord. So as we're looking in verse 4, we see next, And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. He sacrificed and burnt incense. You know, his father had not done that. But he let others do it. And if he let others do it, then he probably let his son do it. His relatives, I don't know who all he let do it because the Bible tells us, and the people burnt incense in the high places. Well, his son was one of the people. And he sure took up burning incense when he was a king. In fact, it sounds like he was pretty good at it. And we don't know for sure, but it seems very likely that Ahaz let his son, or that Jotham let his son Ahaz do as he pleased. You know, I've heard of Christians who let their children decide whether they want to go to church with them or not. Listen, you bring your children to church. They're your children. They're not somebody else's, and they're not their own. If they live in your house after they turn 18, then you have the right to make that a condition of them continuing to stay there. They may say, well, I'm an adult. I can do what I want. Yes, you certainly can. You can pay all the rent you want in your own apartment. You can buy your own gas and insurance and pay your phone bill and your own grocery bill. You sure can. But it's not happening here. So therefore, the deal is, you go to church with me. And people may say, and I've heard them say, well, I don't believe in forcing a religion on my children. Well, let me ask this question to those people who would say that. Did you force them to take a bath when they were dirty? You sure did. Did you? Now, that doesn't mean they liked baths, but they didn't go to bed filthy, did they? Did you force them to hold your hand and not run out in front of moving cars? Why, of course you did. Because you didn't want them to get run over. 
It'll be okay right there. You can leave it right in the, in the aisle if you want to. Now, that didn't mean your children loved for you to hold their hands while they were crossing the street or walking down the sidewalk, but it was your duty to keep them safe, whether they liked it or not. And later in life, when their brains fully develop, which is much later than you might imagine, <laughs> they would be thankful that you did these things for them. Now, when it comes to bringing your children to church, it is your duty because they and you need to be under the teaching of God's Word. And what you and they learn here should be reinforced at home throughout the week. That's how you, or that's one of the ways you bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You bring them here. Don't send them here on the church bus. We don't have one, and I'm glad we don't. I want families to come. I want them to bring their kids. I don't want our church to have to go by and pick up someone else's children while the family members stay home and get over their hangover or get ready for their Super Bowl party or whatever they're doing. We want families here. But your children should be with you in the company of people who love God and who love you and your children the right way, not the way the world does. Now, you may notice, and I'm just going to step away here for a moment because this came to mind as I was studying. You may notice a difference between the Lord's church and cults. In the church, we want families to come together, to worship together. We want husbands and wives to learn together. Now, we have classes for smaller children, and lessons are taught on their level. My daughter is teaching a few little ones right now in a way that they can understand. But you know what she's teaching them? The same thing I'm teaching you. She's just teaching it to them. She's not teaching them fairy tales or, or something else, they're learning the Bible. We have a Genesis to Jesus class where people are taught the gospel from the beginning of the Bible to the resurrection of Jesus. And when people graduate from Genesis to Jesus, then they come together in the auditorium. And guess what happens when we have completed our teaching for the day? This is one of the things that separates us from a cult. Families go home together. We don't want them to stay here. We want them to go home and take what they learned and be together and encourage one another in the Lord. And one of the hallmarks of a cult, such as the Branch Davidians, if you remember them, and many others, is to separate families so the cult leaders can completely control them. And the children answer to the cult leader, and the wives answer to the cult leader, and the, so does the husband. And in cults where there's a, a commune and people live at the same compound, the women are often separated from their husbands and children from their parents, and that's how that brainwashing takes place. And yet another difference between a cult and the Lord's church is that the Lord's church starts with the Bible and never goes away from it. 
We never do depart from it if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. A cult, on the other hand, will start with the Bible to draw in people who are religious but who are vulnerable, who are weak in the faith. And that cult soon departs from the Bible. It doesn't take long. Or worse, uses parts of the Bible to justify their wicked acts. And you're going to see that Ahaz does that later on in his reign. We'll get there soon enough. In a cult, verse-by-verse teaching would never happen. Do you know why? Because the people would begin putting the scriptures together and realizing they've been led astray, realizing that's not what the Bible says. And even a third difference between the cults and the Lord's church is that the cult leaders require their members to sell everything that they have, sell all of their worldly belongings and give that money to the cult. That makes the members economically dependent on the cult. The Lord's church, on the other hand, does not want all of your money. Did you hear that? We don't. We don't want your property either. You have to provide for your own. If you don't, you're worse than an infidel, the Bible says. The Lord's made the tithe the baseline for your giving. And anything you give above that, whether there's a special project, a kingdom involving kingdom work. That's where the money is going, is kingdom work. You say, well, I want to help Brother Wisdom over in Nigeria purchase something for this church because in that church building, he's going to be teaching the gospel. He's already proven himself as a workman that needs not to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. Now, I departed from the text for a moment because it seemed like a good place to make the distinction between a church and a cult. This church has been referred to by some as a cult. But as you can tell, it's the furthest thing from a cult. Now, back to our text where it says, there in, we're in 2 Kings 16, verse 4. Where it says they has sacrificed and burnt incense. We're going to look at some further details on Ahaz's practice of burning his son in the fire. We learned he did that last week. We're going to look at Second Chronicles chapter twenty-eight, verse three. Now, if you want to just write that down in your notes. That's fine, so you don't have to try to hurry and get there. I'm going to read from Second Chronicles 28, verse 3, where it says, this is about King Ahaz. Remember, Second Chronicles has a parallel accounts of what Second Kings does. It says, moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire. Now, we read that he burnt his son in the fire, which he did, but it tells us in Second Chronicles he burnt more than one of his children in the fire. This is the hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebellion that the religion of the fallen world practices. If somebody ever tells you, well, all these religions are the same, they all lead to the same place, to God, they don't either. In fact, all but one of them lead away from God. Things are done in the name of Jesus. But 
they're not God's word. Yesterday, and I'll tell you, uh, Satan loves that world religion. God despises it. Satan loves it. It's counterfeit. And he's the king counterfeiter. Study the book of Revelation as we did verse by verse a couple of years ago. And you'll see Satan is the great counterfeiter. Whatever God makes, Satan tries to counterfeit it. Yesterday as I was mowing my lawn, I was listening to a hymn, Jesus Paid It All. And in one of the verses in that hymn, it says this about Jesus. He can change the leper's spots. And I thought of a Bible verse, and it's in Jeremiah 13, 23. Jeremiah 13, verse 23, where it says, it asks this rhetorical question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard, the animal, his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. So the leper is sung about in Jesus paid it all, and the leopard is written about there in Jeremiah. But the rhetorical question means it is asked, and it's not asking you for an answer. The answer is obvious. Can a leopard change his spots? No, he can't. Can a leper change his spots? No, he can't. He can't heal himself of that incurable disease. And the only one who can is Jesus. Now, why is that? Because let's take the leopard about whom Jeremiah wrote. The spots on a leopard are something that leopard is born with. And I called Brother Fulton to share this with him. I, I stopped weed eating for this. And I sat down, and normally I'll just send him a text, but I said, i got to tell you about this. And maybe you've already seen this truth in the Bible. But that was what he shared with me. He said that leopard's born with those spots. It's his nature. He can't change them. Just like you are born a sinner, and you can't change that. Only Jesus can. You may say, well, I'll do better. Does that mean you won't be a sinner anymore? No. You're born a sinner. You inherited that sin nature from Adam. You practice that sin nature by choice. Because always before you are two ways. The good way and the bad way. And so you practice that by choice. Nobody makes you do that. And those who are accustomed to do evil, as Jeremiah said, are going to do evil. Only God can change their hearts. So if you're sitting around waiting on somebody who's lost to just start being a better person or doing better, any improvement you see in them is temporary and is not of God. Just because somebody does better today than they did yesterday doesn't mean they're saved. Do you think people like King Ahaz, as wicked as he is, and we haven't read everything about him, but do you think people like him could just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be holy today and start doing it? Just take up from there and be holy? They can't do that any more than a leopard 
can change his spots. And the religions of this world, it's always been this way. The religions of this world and church buildings all over the world are full of leopards who think they can change their own spots. They say, well, I'll go back here and get dunked in this baptistry and that'll wash my sins away. No, it won't wash your sins away. It's an act of a good conscience toward God, Peter wrote. It's something that follows salvation. It's you testifying to others about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you're raised to walk in newness of life, that is a picture of it when we bring you back up out of the water. But to say that does anything for you spiritually is to say I can change my own spots. I'm a leopard and I can change my spots. Or when someone says, well, I, I, uh, I said this sinner's prayer one time and that's how I know I'm saved. You're just a leper who tried to change your own spots. You show me in the Bible where it says to do that. And it's not in there. We've checked. <laughs> we've checked and we've checked and we've counseled people who spent their lives doubting their salvation and praying some kind of prayer over and over and over again. You're not any better than a Catholic who depend on their multitudes of prayers. Or the Pharisees who depended on their multitudes of prayers to be accepted by God. And I'll tell you, that'll offend most of the independent Baptists, and I've been one as long as I can remember. If you tell them, hey, all this stuff you do down here, at, first of all, that's not an altar. God said, there will be no steps at my altar. So it's not an altar. Those are steps, and we're glad to have them because I'm only five feet nine, and it's the only way you can see me. If I don't step up here, you'll miss out. Without God's grace, Ahaz could hope only to be one who was accustomed to do evil. He couldn't change his spots. He could only hope to be one who would burn his children in the fire in the valley of Hinnom, and there's more. Look back in your text. It says in verse 4 that he burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, not only did Ahaz burn incense in the high places, he took it to another level by doing it on the hills, under every green tree. Now, his father had just lived and let live. We learned that over the course of the last couple of weeks. He just lived and let live. But Ahaz went all the way with his false religion, the one that his dad let him have. The one his dad didn't do anything about. He said, son, you, you got to find your own way out there. No, what he should have done is taught him the Bible that they had then. And let me tell you, what they had then was enough for a man to be saved. Genesis 3.15 was enough for a man to be saved. If you knew what it meant. Ahaz went all the way, sacrificed his children, he burned incense everywhere he took a notion to. He was very religious. You hear that? He was a very religious man, but he was unrighteous. 
And also in 2 Chronicles 28, we're told about some other wicked things Ahaz did in the name of his false religion. For over there it says, And he made also molten images for Balaam. Those are melted images, molten images. You remember when Aaron did that? Took all of those golden earrings from the people and cast them in the fire and out came the golden calf. That's a molten image. Well, Ahab had his own brand of molten images. Don't know what his website would have been called. Not only was he a child burner, an incense burner, but he was also an idol maker. He didn't sneak around with his idolatry. He didn't hide it in a sack or under a tent. He didn't have, as you might hear some old-timers say, he didn't have a goat tied off somewhere. He was brazen about it. And I'll bet he made a pretty penny doing it as well. You may recall in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, that there was a man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. And he reminds me somewhat of King Ahaz. Now listen to verses 24 through 28. This is in Acts chapter 19, verses 24 through 28. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana. Now she was one of the Ephesian goddesses. Brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. It was a money-making operation. Whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, these images that were being made, which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now Ahaz and Demetrius here in Acts were quite bold about their idolatry. Idolatry was and still is a money-making business. The Catholic online trinket store called MonasteryIcons.com. Boy, that's a catchy name, isn't it? MonasteryIcons.com. Don't write it down. You don't need to go there. But so that I can teach, I wanted to show you this is going on still. And they sell all kinds of paraphernalia, such as painted icons. An icon is an image. Painted icons of Christ, or what they say is Christ. What they have up there is a long-haired, white-skinned male. They don't have a Jew. They don't know what Jesus looked like in the first place. They weren't supposed to be making any images or descriptions of him in that way. But those painted icons of Christ, 
so so called Christ retail for up to six hundred and ninety five dollars. Now, for Catholics who don't have six hundred and ninety five dollars to spend, they can settle for a divine mercy refrigerator magnet for four ninety five plus shipping and handling. And one of the Greek iconographers, that is, person who makes these icons and writes about them, one of those Greek iconographers said this about the items that are, that are sold. He said, icons raise the soul and mind to the realm of the spirit. Now that sounds just like something Ahaz would have said. It sounds exactly like what Demetrius believed, but it's absolute foolishness. What raises the soul and mind to the realm of the spirit, to use the words of that iconographer, is the word of God. That's what does it. And other than purchasing a Bible so that the publishers of it can make enough money to pay their employees and publish more Bibles, the word of God itself is free. The word of God doesn't cost anything. I could read this entire Bible to you and take a full day doing it if I had the voice. And it wouldn't cost you anything. It's when God's Spirit teaches you the Word. He brings it to your remembrance when you're in need. When you're out there in this world and it's about Tuesday and you're up to here with what you've heard at your workplace and what you've seen in front of you, what's flashed across the screen of your, your computer or your television or whatever it might be. And God, and you're down in the dumps and God's word comes to mind. That's God's spirit bringing to remembrance his word, something you have read, you have been taught, something you memorized. When it, when the Bible testifies of the grace of God. That's what does these things that the iconographer claims the icons do. Those icons don't bring you closer to God. They help you to disobey God's word. You don't need a painting or a refrigerator magnet or rosary beads or a necklace or a metal cross in your hand or anything else you just need God's word. But Ahaz and his idols were on full display in the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. He didn't hold back. He was bold. You know, the church of the gender confused is like that too. There's no more subtle innuendo. There's no more gentle persuasion or suggestion. This group is outright. Now, there's not an, a church that's called the Church of the Gender Confused. This is the group of people who've made that their religion. But they've come out of the closet and they burn the bridge behind them. They're bold, they're wicked, they're in your face. And what's worse is they're in your children's face and your grandchildren's face, nieces and nephews. And so many schools are allowing that to happen. I believe the stage was set for this the first time, the very first time that society began congratulating the out-of-closet homosexual. 
And rather than shame, that homosexual received fame. And since that day, nothing has been out of bounds for the church of the gender confused. The county where I live and work has the following statement regarding its employment policy. Now keep in mind, this is one of the most conservative counties in the state of Texas. And it says, quote, the county will not discriminate on the basis of race, color, religion, national origin, sex, including lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender status, age, genetic information, pregnancy, veteran status, disability, or any other condition or status protected by law in hiring, promotion, demotion, raises, termination, training, discipline, listen to this, use of employee facilities, or programs, or any other benefit, condition, or privilege of employment, except where required by state or federal law, or where a bona fide occupational qualification exists. I wish they learned to use periods before they'd write these. It takes an awfully deep breath to, to go through all that. But the two things I noticed in there were the words transgender status and use of employee facilities. Any restroom in a county building in my county or in your county is an employee facility. If it's a county building, that means county employees work there or clean the building or manage it somehow. By our policy, a transgender person, a man in a dress, could go into a ladies' restroom in a county building. Now, I'm going to tell you, if I ever see that happen, I'm going to stop it, especially if I know that there is a lady or a, or a child, a female, minor female, in that restroom. And if I do that, I may be subject to disciplinary action from my county where I'm employed. Although I am pretty sure my boss would back me 100% because he feels the same way, and I thank God for him. But it's sad that such a possibility would ever exist. But like the brazen, in-your-face religious practices of Ahaz... The bold, rebellious disobedience we see by certain groups in our country is the result of leaving the high places standing. If we'd have shut them down a long time ago, we'd have said, no, that is still a violation of the law in Texas. The Texas Penal Code for many years, ever since its inception, for many years it had homosexual conduct as a Class C misdemeanor, just like a traffic ticket. It was against the law. And it got taken out. So did a lot of other things. Now, let's look at verse 5. Then reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. Now, why do you think Pekah, the king of Israel... And reason, this Gentile king, king of Syria, could not overcome Ahaz. Do you think it was because Ahaz was such a righteous king? No. But we do know the Bible says his father Jotham was mighty when it came to the military. So there were most likely soldiers and captains left over from Jotham's reign who remained under Ahaz's reign. And what's sad here is that if Ahaz is like all of the other self-righteous kings and rulers of the world, he may have thought that 
his military strength was due to the protection of his own idols or something he did. And that would be a bad mistake to assume that evil works bring about good things. Verse 6, At that time, Reason, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drave the Jews from Elath. And the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. That means unto the day that this scripture was written. Wow, we see Elath again. Elath has been taken by the Syrians. But just a couple of chapters ago in 2 Kings chapter 14 verses 21 through 22, I'll refresh your memory. This was under King Uzziah's reign, also known as King Azariah. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after that the king slept with his fathers. So when Uzziah was king, Elath was recovered. And now it's being taken away again by the Syrians. We read about Uzziah, and he was a good king. He did the same thing that his son Jotham did. He left the high places standing, and it just got worse from there. But Uzziah was a good king, and so he was able to gain that which was lost. Ahaz is an evil king who lost that which had been gained. And perhaps Ahaz thought, well, they may have taken Elath, but I'm still here. I'm still standing, so no big deal. If that's the case, he was foolish just like the evil man is foolish today. He thinks he's his own boss, doesn't he? He's a self-made man who doesn't need God, but when he falls in the end, he's going to fall hard. And the Syrians, just like Satan, are not content to just take Elath, to just take one parcel of land from Judah. They're like any other enemy. Their desire is to conquer and to conquer and to conquer, to take more and more and more land. Look at Israel's enemies. Since God gave her that wonderful and very large promised land after they crossed the Jordan. And it's just done this over the years. Now it's a little piece of pie. And it's got a cancer in it over here called the Palestinians and the cancer over here. And on every side it's surrounded by its enemies who keep lobbing bombs into this country who would just love to live in peace. But it's not going to happen. In Syria, in the text, and now, would love nothing more than to take every bit of that land. Now, verse 7, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Now, you have Syria and you have Assyria, two different countries here. King of Assyria saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. Now that's stubbornness, isn't it? The king of Judah, Ahaz, rather than turning to the Lord in repentance for salvation, for the salvation of Judah, looked to the Assyrians to help him against the Syrians in Israel. Now, there are three problems here. And last week we looked at the nature of that attack. 
Syria and Israel were coming against Judah. So you had enemies without, meaning those who were Gentiles, and then you had enemies within, the Israel, the Israelites, the northern kingdom, coming against their own sister nation, Judah. But there are three problems that I noted here in my study. First of all, Ahaz says to this Gentile king, I am thy servant and thy son. <laughs> Had God taught his people to serve other nations? No. No, he said, don't have anything to do with them. He said, drive them out. I will deliver them into your hands. And yet Ahaz not only said, I'm your servant, but he also said, I'm your son. You know, Ahaz represents that stiff-necked unbeliever. And the Assyrian king represents Satan. And that king is against God and God's people. Just because Ahaz says to the Assyrian king, hey, I'll, I'll be your servant and your son. That doesn't mean the Assyrian king loves him. He sees a benefit. Yet Ahaz would rather submit to an enemy king and be called his son than to submit to the Lord God of Israel. Now here's how Ahaz should have handled all this. You'll find this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. This is how Ahaz should have handled this situation. Here's what it says. The writer of the Hebrews is testifying of Moses. He said, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, when he became an adult, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You hear the difference there? Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Let me sum that up for you there. When Moses was old enough to have sense, he said, I'm not going to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. And even though the Pharaoh's daughter had saved him from death as a baby, he was in the ark of bulrushes. She pulled him out. She said, go get him. It was mother, his mother who nursed him. It wasn't the Pharaoh's daughter. It was his own mother. And although Moses was raised in a palace with the finest food and education and clothing and everything he wanted at his hands, it was his own mother who gave him what was necessary to live, life. She nursed him. She brought him up to that age where he could benefit from the education and all of the protections of the palace. But for Moses to call himself Pharaoh's daughter would be to deny his position as a Hebrew, as a Jew. So he refused it. He said, I know who my family is. And that scripture in Hebrews said he would rather suffer affliction with God's people. Ahaz didn't want to suffer affliction with Judah. He wanted to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, so he sold out to the Assyrian king, as we'll continue reading in a moment. He had an earthly father, Jotham. That is, Ahaz had an earthly father, Jotham. And had he accepted him, 
had he accepted that his heavenly father was the Lord God of Israel, things would have been different. A second problem arose when Ahaz called on a Gentile nation to help him against Israel. You know, it was God's perfect will, and still is, that Judah and Israel, they're not separated now by those names, but Judah and Israel would be one nation under one God for all time. That was God's perfect will. His perfect will was not that they would have a king. Remember, they said, we want a king. And that wasn't God's perfect will for them. But he said, all right, I'll give you a king. And who'd they get? Boy, they got Saul. Things went downhill in a hurry, didn't they? They got their own king. God wanted to be their king, but the Israel would not receive him. And because of the sins of Solomon, God took Israel and he rent it, he tore it. Putting ten tribes in the north called Israel and two in the south called Judah. And when Ahaz, in our text, turned to this Assyrian king, he asked for help against Israel. The ultimate form of that help against Israel would be to completely destroy Israel. To destroy all the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. Rather than to be reunified Israel and Judah together. If you read the book of Hosea, which we're going to study here in a few moments, as the pastor brings the 11 o'clock hour message, you're going to see that God is calling for Israel and Judah to return to him. What happens if they return to him? They're reunified, aren't they? One doesn't destroy the other. God's interest in Israel and Judah is not that they simply physically return so the Jews can all live in the same land or all have the same earthly ruler. No, there is a greater teaching. And it's about what the Apostle Paul calls the Israel of God. The Israel of God is not limited to the national Jews, the racial Jews who have ever been born. The Israel of God, if you'll read Galatians chapter 6, you'll have a more perfect understanding of it. The Israel of God is every believer from every age, whether they were a Jew or Gentile. That's the Israel of God. And the only way they will be reunified, whether they're Jew or Gentile, is when they come to faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for them at the cross. When they are part of the gospel covenant by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And in that covenant, Jesus is both the creator of it, he's the mediator of it, and he's the guarantor to those who are in that covenant. I don't have a bone in my body, as far as I know, that has Israeli blood. Now, going all the way back to Adam, yes, we all do. We're all of, he is made of one blood, all nations. I understand that. But if you trace my family back, then we don't end up in Israel. We end up in all kinds of places. I'm a Heinz 57, just like maybe some of you are. I got all kind of stuff in me. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm part of that covenant because my faith is in what Jesus did for me. 
In John chapter 11, verses 51 through 52, the high priest named Caiaphas said this. He, this is when Jesus was being tried by those Jews and the Romans alike. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now that you see that unity God's way is the aim of the gospel, Ahaz's conspiracy to fight against Israel is all the more egregious. And next week we'll, God willing, finish up that verse where it said, where Ahaz cried, Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel which rise up against me. Let's pray. Father, your word has been good to us today. Thank you for the help of your spirit in studying it and in presenting it to these people today. And Lord, I pray that it was received with clarity. And Father, we know that only your spirit can teach us the word. You can put a man up here who can do his very best, but in the flesh, we're weak, we stumble, we stutter, we don't use the right words sometimes. But Lord, your word is pure, it never changes, and so I pray that you would impress it into the hearts of those who heard, that they would consider it, they would believe it, and then live by it. As we go into the next hour, Lord, we ask the same thing for our pastor, that you'd give him the mind of Christ concerning what he is preaching. Give us listening ears and remove all the distractions that we may have brought in with us today. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.